Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. I'm here with the one, the only, Ron Bar-Yashafar, also known as Barrio. And today we're going to be talking about a couple of things, such as the UAE peace deal, the uh, generalized you know, national security issues, and a couple other things we'll get into, such as conservatism and how to spread it across the world and such things as that. But anyways, uh, let's jump right in. And if you can't tell, my Background's a little bit different because I am not currently at the studio. I am actually in Los Angeles, California. So broadcasting from here, uh, having a little bit of fun with the, uh, with, you know, not doing anything, being stuck in the house because of the lockdown. But um, let's jump right into it. So Ron, how are you? I'm good. Thank you very much for uh, having me on your uh, podcast. Yeah, thanks for coming on. It's super exciting to have you. Uh, so I want to jump right into it, and that the first thing I want to jump into is the uh, Israel UAE peace deal. So, uh, so I'm sure uh, you know in America we're talking about it a little bit. I'm sure you are talking about it in Israel. Uh, generally, right now, uh, it seems like everyone in the United States is really happy about it, except Ben Rhodes, Obama's former national security mm -hmm. advisor, which isn't that shocking. Of course, the Obama administration was supremely anti-Israel. Uh, but so tell me, how how's it, how's it feel in Israel? What's, what's the general mood and attitude surrounding it? Okay, so um, I would say that the vast majority of Israelis are extremely happy. Um, there are a few, a few people on the fringe of the left who are very much opposing the deal because they're saying it's not a good deal if it's not including the Arabs in Gaza and Judea and Samaria. Um, but I have to say that what is really unique about this um, basically agreement, because for the past decade and a half, Israel and the UAE had um, informal relations. But what is changing is that it's becoming formal. Now, that is very unique uh, uh, for the Middle East, and I'll try to explain. There used to be an equation that said that only when Israel will have peace with, with its neighbor, with the PA, the Palestinian Authority, then you will be able to have peace in the Middle East. Um, and only then mm -hmm. Israel will be able to have peace with other Arab countries. And right. right now, that was usually what the left was saying. Right now we see that the equation um, has turned, meaning instead of seeing Israel as the problem, Israel is now the solution. So more and more Arab countries are um, starting to be open about having ties with Israel. These ties are not just um, ties of uh, tourism. It's also economic ties. It's also security ties. The main reason why the UAE and pretty soon I'm, I'm hoping Saudi Arabia and other countries that it will follow, the main reason why they're uh, becoming more close to Israel is the fear of Iran. Basically, they're saying we have a common enemy um, who's against, uh, is against free market basically also among uh, many other things. And they're, they're, they're seeing Israel as an ally in that case. And I think that that is a big shift and that can actually bring stability to the Middle East. I think that, you know, at the end of the day, um, good economy for normal people is, is a good way to have a normal type of life. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it seems like the only people who disagree with the deal is the, uh, is, so, is uh, Ayatollah Khomeini and, uh, you know, American leftists and I guess Israeli leftists. So, uh, you said that their problem with it is that they say it leans out, uh, leaves out the Palestinians, right? I, I, this is exactly what I've heard some American leftists say too. And honestly, I, I don't really understand it because even the Palestinians are saying it. Like they, I, I know the Palestinians withdrew their embassy from the UAE because they said they didn't consent to it and the UAE didn't talk to them about it. I, I don't get where this is coming from. Like, why, does a, why does a foreign uh, legitimate country have to make their foreign policy at the whims of the Palestinians. Where, where, where's this idea coming from? So I think that the whole notion comes from this concept that there's, uh, there are people who are so evil that they would rather poke one person in the eye, even if it means that they have to poke both of their eyes. And I think that is really the case here. Because obviously it's gonna be um, a lot more safe for everyone in the Middle East if we have more peace treaties. Obviously it's gonna be better for the economy. It's gonna be better for, for the whole world. Um, but it's not going to damage Israel. And some people would rather see Israel suffer, even if it's going to cause more, more suffering to the Arabs of Judea and Samaria, what some people refer to as West Bank and Gaza, because that's their true goal. And I would say in a nutshell, but that's the whole, um, you know, people call it the BDS campaign. I call it the movement to destroy Israel. They, they don't care about the fact that they're actually hurting the Arabs, because usually Arabs who work in Israel properly, they make more money, they make a nice living, 
there's more prosperity, more human rights. They don't care about the Arabs there. They are what you call um, social justice warrior and they're saying I'm fighting for a right cause and they don't care who they hurt as long as they can vilify Israel. And um, that's my hunch. It's really the same thing here, meaning the people are saying, well, you're not including the Arabs of Judea and Samaria. How are they even connected? The only thing that will change is that they will also make um, you know, more profit from this peace treaty. Uh, it'll just be better for them with, with their economic status. But that's it. Um, it's not hurting them, definitely. But it means that there's no leverage against Israel. And again, this is the shift of the equation because people like to see Israel as the problem for the Middle East. And now Israel is becoming the solution for the Middle East. People like to say, oh, only if, only if Israel solves its um, conflict with the PA, then it could have peace with other um, Arab countries. And now they're saying, well, if Israel is going to have peace with other Arab countries, what are we going to protest against? So I think that's the main issue with the far French left. <laughs> yeah, we, it seems like uh, a lot of Arab countries, I mean, it seems like most Arab countries that the Arab world have been dropping the Palestinians uh, in favor of Israel because of um, the threat that Iran poses. Uh, is there any uh, news on if any other Arab countries are going to uh, be making a deal like this in the future? I've heard talks of, I think, uh, Oman and Bahrain and potentially Saudi Arabia. What's, what, what's the word on that? Do we, do we know anything about that? So first of all, I have to say, even though I'm very uh, I'm optimistic, I'm also very cautious. I don't think that Israelis are going to fly to Dubai tomorrow. But I do think that it's a good first step. And again, I'm not sure that the Arab countries are doing this because of their love for Israel. I think they're doing it mostly because of their fear from Iran. So right. we're still talking about a concept of interest. However, you know, there's um, a Muslim doctor in, uh, in Saudi Arabia and another expert uh, for Middle Eastern studies, a professor from the UAE. And they both said, you know, in Israel, we are uh, lifting and waving the flags of Saudi Arabia of, and of the UAE. We actually had the UAE flag um, in the Tel Aviv municipality on the, oh, on really? the building of the municipality. So they're saying in Israel, oh, yeah. we celebrate the flag of the UAE while under the PA, they burn these flags. So I think that's a very interesting topic here. Now, the thing is that the Arabs of Judea and Samaria and Gaza, again, I, I, don't, I try to refrain from the term Palestinians because they don't consider them as a nation. Um, but just for to explain to the audience, um, they've been used as a pawn by, by, for many years, meaning they were just um, a way to attack Israel. That, that's all they were because, you know, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Jordan, in Egypt, all of these Arabs who, who have um, their origins from the land of Israel, they have zero rights. The only place where these Arabs actually have rights is in Israel proper. In Israel proper, Jews um, uh, and Arabs have uh, same full equal rights, but the Arabs who came from the land of Israel and, and they now live in Lebanon or Syria or Jordan or Egypt, they have zero rights. Um, basically, they live in uh, refugee camps. They're not allowed to work in all of these professions. So they were used as pawns to basically put pressure on Israel. Once that thing is gone, once they are not needed anymore to pressure Israel, um, then there, there's nothing that you really need to do with them. Um, so we can actually talk about having peace. Now, I have to say, I do have a strong and honest desire, as I think all Israelis, to have peace with our neighbors. Um, I don't have anything against, not even the Iranian people, by the way. I'm very much against the Ayatollah. I'm very much against the leader of Iran that's the current leader, but I have nothing against the Iranian people. And I do hope that in the future we'll have, have peace with Iran also. But before that, I'm very um, hopeful that we will be able to have peace with our neighbors. And I'm just saying, if we were to have peace with Lebanon, for instance, right now it's uh, an Iranian proxy, Hezbollah, it's the Iranian proxy that sits in Lebanon. I think the Lebanese people are tired of that as well because they understand that it's hurting them more than it's hurting Israel. Um, and if they will denounce Hezbollah and denounce the money that Iran is sending them, and they will open up to the Western world, that will be fantastic for Israel and for Lebanon. It yeah. will make Lebanon a, a very appealing touristic site. It will mean that Israelis will be able to basically drive to Europe, um, which I think will be amazing. Um, so, yeah, I do hope that in my lifetime, uh, again, I don't think it's going to happen in the next uh, decade, but I do hope that in my lifetime, we'll be able to see Israel uh, living at peace with its neighbors. 
I just don't believe that we'll have peace with the Arabs living in Judea and Samaria or the Arabs living in Gaza. I, I think that the main difference is that while most countries, uh, even if it's modern countries or even if it's ancient countries in the Middle East, they have a sense of identity. Um, they have their own narrative. And I would argue that the Arabs of Judea and Samaria and Gaza, they don't have a narrative, they just have a negative. They want based, their identity basically is to annihilate Israel, which is why I'm like, I cannot have peace with someone that their goal is to annihilate me. I can have peace with someone who says, I have uh, you know, different interests than you, but let's see if we can meet in the middle. Uh, yeah, you know, you actually brought up something interesting about how the Arab countries have always used the Palestinians, the, the quote-unquote Palestinians, as, uh, you know, a means to an end, uh, a way to just kind of antagonize Israel. Uh, you know, it seems like most people don't actually know, and I think from uh, a great failure of the media, is actually how bad these uh, countries have actually treated the Palestinians in the past. Uh, because we know after, I believe it was the uh, Yom Kippur War, you had a lot of these Palestinians that were displaced in Jordan and Syria and all, all throughout the Middle East. And they, they eventually were put into camps uh, by these Arab nations and then tossed out and uh, deported back to, uh, uh, you, know, I guess, uh, you know, what is considered Palestine today. Uh, and, you know, historically, the Arab nations haven't treated the Palestinians uh, great and actually they've treated them much worse than uh, I think Israel ever has because they actually were like straight up gathering up and deporting them. How come? Well, mm-hmm. Why do you think our media has never talked about things like that? Why do you think our media is always hell bent on making the uh, Arab nations look like they want peace and the only way we can get peace is if Israel gives concessions, land concessions, and and everything, and uh, and gives a state to the Palestinians? Why do you think? Uh, the media is always so hell-bent on driving this narrative? Well, there are many theories why. In a nutshell, um, you have two types of countries. You have a very small country that just wants people to know about it. Like, I don't want to give examples, but you have small countries in the world that just want to uh, um, have people come visit them. And you have uh, superpowers like um, Russia, China, India, they're trying to justify what it is that they're doing. Israel is a tiny country that needs a PR of a superpower. Um, and I think that what is interesting uh, here is that what is it that people really care about? Now, here's, I'm a conservative, okay? I, I have conservative sets of values. But what is always amazing to me is that who are these people who usually vilify Israel? They come from the far progressive side. So I'm trying to understand. Usually the far progressive is extremely pro-LGBTQ, um, you know, like to have a very free open society, pro-women's rights, it's yet they're promoting the concept of a new country where they say that if even if you sell your house to a Jew, it's a death sentence. They're promoting the creation of a country that they want to call it, it will be hanged, uh, where women have zero rights, where there's no freedom of religion. And I'm really trying to understand what, what is this notion. And the only thing I can find is common, in common is that um, it's called the Red-Green Alliance, meaning the far, far left, which is communist red flag, and the radical Islam, which is the, the red flag. And what they have in common is that they're both against uh, nationalistic values. They're both against all sorts of values like um, family values, like communities, like countries, nations, and so on and so forth. And what they found is that they are also both against Israel. And I think that's one of the main reasons, because people um, used to see Israel as the David versus the Goliath, and now people see Israel as the Goliath, because we are stronger. And without a doubt, if I had to compare how much I'm suffering compared to my Arab neighbors, of course they're suffering more, they have more casualties, they live in poverty. The only difference is that I'm, I'm arguing it's not my fault, it's their leadership. And while the world tries to put pressure on Israel, I'm saying, but that's creating the exact opposite um, um, uh, way to, it's the opposite way to solve this problem. If you wanna, if you wanna have better solution, if you want the Arabs to have a better life, you need to put pressure on their leadership. I'll just give you two examples. Um, Hamas is the second wealthiest terrorist organization in the world. They have a lot of money. The money is not being spent on hospitals, schools, I don't know, uh, all sorts of infrastructure. Instead, they're using the money for two things mainly. One is missiles aiming at Israel, and the second is tunnels. They literally, they're building tunnels trying to penetrate into Israel. They have 
tens, tens of thousands of miles underground, and they're using their money to build tunnels to penetrate in, into Israel. If people don't know, in 2005, Israel evacuated all the Jews from the Gaza Strip. All of the Israelis left Gaza. Israel left Gaza, but Gaza did not leave Israel. Hamas went medieval over the PA people, burning people alive, throwing them from rooftops. The media did not report it because it had nothing to do with Israel. Hamas took over. Now Gaza is basically Hamas-stan. It's, it's a terror entity. And they're spending all their money to attack Israel instead of building an infrastructure. That's example number one. Example number two is the moderates, the PA, the Palestinian Authority, where again, it's a death sentence today if you sell your house to a Jew. They're being taught in their schools. Yeah, the moderates. They're, they're, they're teaching in their schools that Jews are descendants of apes and pigs. And, and again, it's, it's mind-blowing to me that the moderates are supporting them. Now, let's differentiate between the people. I have nothing against the Arabs who live there and their leadership. Their, their leadership is so corrupt that they make it worthwhile for someone to create a terror attack. I'll explain. If you murder a Jew and you're being peeled, killed in the process, they will literally name a town square after you or soccer team after you. If you murder a Jew and you're sitting in the Israeli prison, you will get five times more than the average salary under the PA. So it's almost as if it's worthwhile to create, to, to commit terror attacks against Israelis, against Jews. Um, so this is, I think, how the, the world, the fact the world ignores that, that's, you know, uh, some sort of conundrum. Um, and yeah, I guess it's just easier to, to pick on Israel because we are stronger, we have better economy, if I was as bad, I always say this when I'm um, having debates on college campuses, like if I was as horrible as people try to portray me, I wouldn't have a conflict. I, I'm, uh, I mean, I can take over all of Judea and Samaria in a matter of hours. I can take over Gaza in a matter of days. The reason why we don't do it is not because of our great love for the Arabs who live there. It's because we want to look at ourselves in the mirror and be happy with the fact that we're doing everything we can to not hurt innocent civilians. But yeah, we are stronger, we have a better economy, and I think that's one of the reasons. I think sometimes today, the world is against those who are winners. You know, I, I think it's a little more deeper than that. Uh, I, I, I think you were hitting on it a, a little bit too, but when you say that you have this alliance between the red and the green, uh, I, I agree that alliance does exist, but you said it's an alliance against Israel. I would actually broaden that a little bit, and I would say it's an alliance against Western civilization itself and the, uh, value, the uh, Judeo-Christian Enlightenment values that the West has uh, propagated throughout the centuries. Uh, and I believe, I believe that's one of the reasons why a lot of people on the left absolutely hate Israel, because they see it as a sign of Western greatness in the Middle East as compared to its Arab Islamic neighbors who have historically, uh, ever since the fall of the Ottoman Empire, uh, you know, been on the kind of losing end on things. And the uh, left has this, uh, soft bigotry of low expectations for people who are basically not them. And so they see Israel as this Western country who, this, because of the fact that it is the most powerful and the most wealthy, then it doesn't matter that it's been the, it's never actually committed a really an offensive war. It's mainly fought defensive wars. It's uh, been attacked on all fronts. Uh, they see that as the fault of its existence in the first place because of the Western civilization. It's, it's this, uh, unending uh, argument with uh, an unfalsifiable thesis that all bad things that happen in the world is because of the West, and proof of it is the fact that bad things happened, and the West is the most powerful. So I think that's what, that's what it really stems from. It's uh, when it comes to the uh, these Arab nations uh, having like laws where you got to uh, executing uh, homosexual people, or in the Palestinian areas where they will kill you, uh, kill you if you sell a house to a Jew. Uh, I, I don't think they actually really care about that. I think they see it as a alliance of convenience uh, to bring down Western nations and Western culture. And I, I think that's really what it uh, ends up being. And it's and what's amazing, it's it's not subject to one country. It's transnational. And this is one of the other things I want to talk to you today. Before we get into that, I want to hear your thoughts on, uh, on, on that it's not really an attack on Israel. It's an attack on Western civilization itself. Well, I would definitely say that Israel is the front line of the Western uh, civilization in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, I, I really think that, for instance, if I'll take Iran as an example, 
Iran is not Israel's problem, it's the world's problem because they already have rockets that can hit Israel. They're trying to create rockets that hit Europe and eventually the States. But what I th find amazing about the far radical left in America, for instance, you, you, unfortunately you have people in America who are pro-communism, um, so they're against nationalism, yet they're supporting the concept of a new fake people to have their own nation state, which is quite remarkable because, you know, I'm, I, I'm, gonna, I'm an observant Jew, but I'm going to put the Bible aside because I don't want to use it as, a, as an example. But I think historically we can all agree that there was a second temple. I don't think that's debatable. Uh, so we definitely had a concept of Jewish nationality in the land of Israel uh, 2,000 years ago. And we had continuous um, Jewish communities in, in Israel, we had a, con a continuous Jewish presence there. Um, so I think we have a very strong claim to that area. The Arabs who refer to themselves as Palestinians, which again, I would argue they have zero sense of identity, nothing of the criteria that create a nation as a nation. They don't have it. They want them to have a nation. And I think that's very, very unique and it shows the inconsistency of what, of what they believe in. And basically, I do agree that they care more about destroying than building, meaning I agree with you that they care more about uh, blaming the Western civiliza uh, civilization and destroying the West and actually creating something that's productive because obviously they don't have any expectations from this hopefully will never come future Arab state in Judean Samaria and Gaza. Yeah, and I, uh, I, I agree with that. And I think that's uh, completely right. Uh, real quick, for, right before we start getting into more uh, ideological and cultural issues, I, I do want to talk about uh, Iran uh, real quick and generalized national security across the Middle East. It seems like to me there's been a, this new uh, Middle Eastern coalition growing against Iran uh, and its proxies. And it's a, I think it's, it's probably the most unlikely coalition in history. And we've touched on it a little bit, but this uh, coalition between Israel, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan. UAE against uh, Iran and in their proxies such as mm -hmm. uh, Lebanon, Syria, um, northern Iraq, I think it's fair to say, uh, and, then I, and then of course uh, Iran itself. And you know, I, I think it really shows the uh, problem that Iran is becoming if you can get Arab nations to actually uh, start forming a coalition with Israel instead of against Israel. Uh, and so I, I want to get your thoughts on that. Do, do you think there's any chance of us having this uh, coalition war in the future between a, uh, gener a generally Sunni uh, Shia world with, uh, with some powers on the other side, like Israel, probably siding with the uh, Sunni Arabs, and, uh, and then you got people like probably China signing with, uh, with the Shias and Iran and all that. What, what do you think of the chances of that? So, so yeah, that, these are the interests on the table right now, though I have to say, uh, to be honest, I, I hope that it will be even a little bit better, and I'll try to explain. Before the revolution in Iran, until 1979, Israel had good ties with Iran. Again, I have nothing, me personally, I have nothing against the Iranian people, or any people, not, I have nothing against the Pakistani people or Afghanistan people, I have, I have nothing against them. The problem is that they have a very uh, horrible regime right now. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, the Muslim world, let's divide it into Sunni and Shiite. Sunni is the majority of the Muslim world. The Shiite Muslim world shouldn't care about Israel at all. For the Sunnis, um, Jerusalem is important. It's not the most important. It's not the holiest city. It's the third holiest city. For the Shiite, Jerusalem is not relevant. So the mere fact that Iran is spending all its efforts and all its resources and, and time and money and, and literally spending all of its efforts trying to hurt Israel that's very interesting. It means it's not just a religious issue. It's a, I think it's more of a political issue than a religious issue. They have their, uh, uh, let's call it the axis of evil. I agree with uh, actually former President Bush. I think he recognized that and I, and I agree with it. Basically, Iran is funding Syria, which is a fake country, and funding Lebanon. Not all of Lebanon, Hezbollah. So they have proxies. They have terror proxies in, uh, in Lebanon. What is also interesting is that Iran is also sponsoring Hamas. Now, Hamas is a Sunni terrorist organization. So basically, you have Iran sponsoring, Hamas, Iran is uh, Shiite, and they're sponsoring a Sunni terrorist organization because all they care about right now is hurting Israel, which is very, very interesting. Um, but the Sunni world is actually a lot more concerned about Iran than they are about Israel. 
for two reasons. One, I believe that they know that Israel doesn't really have any aspirations to expand and control other people because that's, if, again, if we wanted to, we would have done a lot of things differently than we're doing it right now. Um, that's number one. Number two, with all the respect to the conflict that Israel has, and I know that Israel is getting all this attention, the Sunni-Shi'i war is a bazillion times uh, more significant for them than Israel. So right now, the Sunni world understands that their biggest threat is a nuclear Iran. People forget that there was used to be a war in the 80s between Iran and Iraq, for those who don't know. In that war, Iran had these things that's called uh, the, the, the children of Tehran. They, they took children, they gave them a necklace with a key, and they told them, this is a key for heaven. And they sent these kids into a minefield to save the, the, um, the military tanks and cars that would have cost money. So they literally sent orphans um, into a minefield to explode. That was how dedicated they were to murder Iraqi soldiers. Okay, this is, the, this is the mindset of the Ayatollah. This is the mindset of the regime that is now controlling Iran. Again, I don't think it's the Iranian people, it's their leadership, but this is how much they're willing to do. They're willing to literally sacrifice the lives of their own children, orphans, just to win the other country. Saudi Arabia understands that. Saudi Arabia understands that if Iran will have a nuclear bomb, they, they will attack Israel, and the next is going to be Saudi Arabia, meaning Saudi Arabia has a lot more to lose. All of the countries in the UAE, they stopped investing only in oil. They now invest in tourism, in high-tech. By the way, unofficially, Israel provides a lot of uh, cyber protection to these countries. Um, they understand that Iran wants to attack them. Iran wants to take what they have because Iran is less developed than the UAE. By the way, it doesn't have to be less developed. It could change and become a more developed countries, but a country. But right now, they're developing. That's one more thing about Iran. Iran is saying that they want to build a nuclear power plant, not for military uh, uh, resources, but just for energy resources, which is quite amazing because this country has an extensive amount of oil. So they're willing to suffer sanctions, which cost them so much pain just to create an alternative energy. It makes no, economically, it makes zero sense. Obviously, you don't need an alternative energy when you're the main provider or one of the main providers of oil. So that shows that they actually have other intentions. And the fact that they are sponsoring different terror organizations, we're not only hurting Israel, by the way. So I have my agenda, okay, I'm biased. I have my agenda, I, I want to live in peace um, and not be killed. But uh, Iran is sponsoring other terrorist organizations around the world, in Yemen, in Saudi Arabia. They're, they're using other proxies of them in Sudan, in South Sudan. They're using all of their, um, not all, but they're using a lot of their energy and resources to do that. And that is the, the shift that is happening in the Sunni, Sunni world, that basically people are waking up and they're saying, we may not love Israel, but we understand that we are going to have a severe problem with the Shiite world in, in Iran mainly. And, you know, my enemy's enemy is my friend. And I think that's one of the main things that you, that you see that are happening right now. Yeah. And so it, that's how it seems like it's going to go. Hopefully Iran uh, collapses before a true conflict like that can get off there. You know, there has been a lot of protests in the country as of late. Uh, and there is some hope with the Iranian people. There was a video that came out of this uh, university in Tehran that has an American-Israeli flag painted on the ground so the students can walk over it every day. And the uh, students actively avoid walking over, the, over them. So, um, yeah, I do think there is hope uh, uh, that a conflict like this doesn't break out, that the Ayatollah falls. Seems like it is something that can happen in the future, and hopefully countries like the United States and Israel are helping facilitate that and giving the people the resources they need. But I want to go ahead and move on to, um, uh, to some more ideological things. I, I want to talk about uh, conservatism throughout the world. Uh, one of the reasons we know each other is because uh, we uh, are both, I think, disciples of conservatism. We um, agree with the values of conservatism and the values of the Enlightenment. And well, one of the things that I've always wanted to do is to kind of start working on a transnational conservative movement. One of the uh, great problems for the Western world is there is a transnational leftist movement. Leftists in all countries know each other. And that's not really something you have uh, with conservatism. Now, granted, conservatism is different in every country. Uh, and that's why we have to define conservatism first, uh, and so, which is what we should probably do. So the conservatism we uh, like to push is the 
uh, I think American British Enlightenment uh, type conservatism that says all men are created equal and uh, that they are endowed with their creator with certain inalienable rights of life, liberty, and property, and that it is the role of government to protect these rights. Uh, and why, well, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that you gave a very accurate analysis. I think that the world uh, is coming to unite with the left, meaning when you have um, a protest in America of Black Lives Matter, you will also have a protest in Israel for Black Lives Matter, which is extremely odd because Israel is the only country in the world that has freed black people from Africa, meaning our Ethiopian community, we took them out of Ethiopia to free them. Um, so it's very... It's very, very odd. We have, uh, we have other issues in Israel. We have racism in Israel, just like any other countries, but it's, it's a very different system. So the fact that the left was trying to connect, um, I, I know that a lot of anti-Israel organizations in America are saying, yes, police officers in America are being trained by the Israeli Defense Force. Obviously, that's, by the way, not what they're, I wish that our, <laughs> I wish that the IDF would use uh, uh, the force that the American police is using, because unfortunately, I think that our IDF is not always using enough uh, force when it comes to, um, to riots. But anyways, the, the point is, yes, the left, I agree with you, is very connected around the world. And the right is different. The conservative uh, concepts are a little bit different because to be a conservative in Israel is a little bit different than a conservative in America or in the UK. However, I do think that you have, you can find things that are in common. You mentioned the right of property. I would also uh, say the recognition of establishments, uh, the, the establishment of the family, the establishment of the community. Um, and I also I would also argue that the concept of reform versus revolution, or I would say evolution instead of revolution. The, the conservatives like to um, to have uh, evolution and not revolution, where, whereas the left likes to decapitate heads, uh, meaning the French Revolution. Um, and I would also I'd argue that the conservatives like to have fair game, meaning I like to have rules of procedure where I know that I can sometimes win and sometimes lose, but I know it's fair game. And I would argue that for the progressive side, it's, um, you know, if it gets me to uh, achieve my goals and I can change the, the rules of the game. In America, you can see it with the, um, and I'm not gonna go to American politics because that's not my field of expertise, but as an outsider, when I heard people saying, oh, uh, Trump won because of the electoral college, but he didn't get the popular vote. I'm like, but, but that's not their system. That's like me playing basketball, you know, um, and then people say, yeah, but they drilled, uh, dribbled more. That, since when does that count? So in Israel, when people are saying Netanyahu was um, basically won over and over again, yeah, but, uh, but we don't like him. Like, okay, but that's, you know, just vote differently next time. If you don't like him, you cannot say I'm going to protest against him so he will resign. Uh, so basically changing the rules of the game. Uh, I can say that there are a few uh, places where... Um, where things are just a little bit different, for instance, the right to bear arms is very different between Israel and America. Um, abortion is not a big debate in Israel, where it is a very big debate in America. Um, so again, I'm a conservative, so yeah, so I would probably fit in very well in America, but in Israel, it's just, it's not a discourse. No one would, would go for, uh, run for office basically to, with using these tickets. Um, for Israel, the right and left mainly deals with uh, three axes, which is how much do you think Israel should control Judea and Samaria, what some people call West Bank. Um, do you think Israel should have more taxes uh, or less taxes, more government population or less? And do you think that the characteristic of Israel needs to be more particularistic or more universalistic, meaning not necessarily religious, but the symbols of the states, uh, the, the national symbols of the states? Um, so, so that's where I think that the, the U.S. and Israel are different. But when it comes to free markets, to, um, to again, to threat of property, to procedural aspects, I think that we are still following the footsteps of Edmund Burke, um, in, a, in a sense. And I think that's where we can find common ground. And I want to say I, I really appreciate the, the fact that you're trying to create some sort of connection between people who have conservative thoughts all over the world. I think it's, it's, it's going to happen because people are going to, uh, affiliate themselves and associate themselves with, with, with people who make sense to them. Um, and they say, well, this guy sounds fair to me and I, and, I, and I appreciate their opinions. And I think it's happening right now. You can see a lot of Israelis who follow conservative people in America. And by the way, it makes them more, more uh, interested in American politics. And it also makes them um, 
changed how they view Israel. You have people who are learning from Americans about, for instance, free markets, because Israel, unfortunately for me, I'm, I'm a capitalist, uh, people, um, Israel was built as a socialist country. And then when people learn more about conservative values, they're saying, wait, hold on. And I have a right for my property. And maybe it's not really working well when the government is trying to control everything. And maybe it's better to have a small government. Um, so I think in that sense, there are, there's more in common than, than stuff that are different. Yeah, you know, uh, I think that across the world, there's a lot of conservative movements, but they are not fully there on their conservative ideas. It's, uh, I, th I think generally a lot of people on the right are more anti-left than conservative. And I think that's why it's really important to have these uh, transnational conservative movements to start teaching people about what conservatism really is, how it's not just anti-left. It actually is a set of ideas uh, for people to follow. Uh, it is the ideas of certain basic human rights being applied to all, of uh, equal, uh, equal and fair chance in society, not equality of outcome, but certainly equality of opportunity. Uh, and, and ultimately, uh, I think really what distinguishes the uh, left in the French Revolution from the right in the American Revolution is the idea of equality over, of liberty over equality, or, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, because I mean, the French Revolution is, is uh, their basic standard was equality, and it was equality everything, equality of outcome. And what they did was they created this uh, society where equality was the highest good, and therefore, uh, if you were not in, in equal in every aspect, you had done something not just bad, but evil. And therefore, this justifies chopping off people's heads. Whereas in the American Revolution, liberty was the primary, uh, was the primary goal of it. And so, and I believe it was John Adams who said, uh, I could be wrong with it, but I believe it was John Adams who said that through liberty will achieve equality, uh, which is, it goes back to what you said about revolution over evolution uh over time we will get there but once you force it you are inherently doing unequal things to people who are undeserving of it and who do not hurt people to achieve their status and where they are and this is one of the biggest things about conservatism it's uh conservatism values equality but it values equality of opportunity it recognizes that we're not equal in all of our capacities and all of our abilities but we're equal in our in our value under under god and, and in nature, and we should be equal in our ability to pursue our life and our thoughts, which is why in the Declaration of Independence, it says the right uh, to, to the pursuit of happiness. And I think as more people around the world uh, start agreeing and coming to terms with these ideas of not, not so much putting equality at the uh, center, but putting ideas of liberty, freedom in the center, I think that's how we can start building a transnational conservative movement. I agree. I actually, uh, I give lectures for this for the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel. For those who don't know, the ultra-Orthodox uh, community are a uh, community uh, of extremely religi religious Jews. And I try to teach them a little bit about politics. So I teach them about the French Revolution and the American Revolution, um, Edmund Burke versus Thomas Paine, and a little bit of Alexis de Tocqueville. And we talk about, we address these issues. I'm going to try and translate from English to Hebrew back to English, so I'm probably messing it up. But uh, I think Milton Friedman said it the best. He said that a, a society that puts freedom above equality will have a good amount of both. A society that will put equality above freedom will have none. Okay, so um, it was so good Friedman. Not, took, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I, I thought I might be wrong with John Adams. Oh, no, no, actually, John Adams also said something uh, similar, but Milton okay. Friedman, I think, phrased it uh, uh, better in yeah. my view. And I think, yeah, I think that the biggest issue here is that sometimes people have this novel idea. In their mind, it's beautiful. You're talking about this utopian world where everyone's equal and singing Kumbaya. The problem is that if someone opposes that, then what are you gonna do? You're gonna have to use force against them, right? So the, this problem with this utopian concept of communism or socialism or social democrat, which is socialism, um, basically that the problem with this is that if, if you have one person that opposes, then you're gonna have to eliminate that person because they're, you know, they're interrupting with this heaven on earth that they're trying to create. And I think that the, the concept of understanding that you, you need to put freedom above, and this is exactly what Alexis de Tocqueville is writing about when he's talking about his, uh, you know, his trip to America. And he's saying in America, they're trying to build a democracy that's based on freedom, 
So it'll work, where as in France, they're trying to build a democracy that's built on freedom, you're gonna have to use force to whoever opposes you. If you're saying you can do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting me, then it has a chance to work. If you're saying we all have to do the same and if you don't agree with me, I'll, I'll have to use force against you. It's not, that, it's not just that socialism and communism has failed all over the world, every place it happened throughout history. It's that it's morally wrong and that it cannot work, which is again, why, why I think um, conservative values, it's not just saying, oh, I don't like the left. It's saying what is morally just and morally good, not just from a utilitarian perspective, but also from, uh, how do you say it in English, uh, deontologistic perspective, just because it is good. Uh, it's, it's a virtue by itself. Yeah, you know, I think where the right and the left really departs is uh, that I say the first departure uh, between the right and the left is the idea of human nature. Uh, I think what makes the left wrong and not just actually wrong, but morally wrong is the idea that human nature is inherently good. This is what the French Revolution was predicated on. This is uh, especially Robespierre, when he was doing his writings, he really truly believed that human nature was good. And the problem with this is if human nature is good, then when you would try to achieve your perfect society and it doesn't work out, the reason it didn't work out isn't because of the flawed nature of human beings. It's because there are these humans who do not accept the system and therefore they are not just evil, they are not human. Because if humans are morally good, then when a human is not morally good, according to the left, they're not human anymore. And this justifies taking their rights away. And this is how you got the French Revolution. Whereas in the American Revolution on the right, our basic uh, precept of human nature is that humans uh, have a great capacity for evil and are more likely to act on that. And therefore, when you take that into account, you have to create a system which allows the best of humans and, and creates it uh, it makes it most hard to infringe on the rights of others. And this is how you get the American Revolution. Because if a human does something evil, it's not surprising, it's more likely. So the question becomes, how do you, uh, not how do you stop the evil, but how do you deter the evil? And I think that's the, where the idea of placing freedom and liberty over the ideas of equality come from. Because if you are going to have a system in which people are able to engage in it, but it's harder for them to, uh, to gain power, like in the uh, US system, in the Congress, it is very hard to gain absolute power. This is gonna be better for humanity and the human condition. But when you got the French Revolution, it uh, and everyone's ideas uh, of humans were different, therefore everyone became absolutely evil and non-human, it justified uh, chopping heads off. And I think this is where the ultimate death of where humanity comes from. If you look at the Soviet Union, uh, it got to the point where Stalin, would point at a random city on the map and say, I want you to kill 20,000 people here who are a threat to the Communist Party because if they're a threat, it means that they are not human. And to show how perfect they were and how uh, much they supported the Communist Party, uh, Stalin's people would go and kill 35,000 people. And it, it, comes, it stems from this idea that if, if you can put this idea that humans are good and therefore they are more likely to do this one thing that I like doing to achieve paradise when human nature is not like that at all. You get these systems where you don't take into account actual human nature and you uh, allow for humans to be killed on the back of a grand utopian vision that doesn't actually exist. Yeah, I agree. And I, I don't have it in front of my eyes, but I, I hope I'm quoting correctly. I think it's the Federalist 51 if all men were angels, then no government were necessary. And if all governments were run by angels, then you wouldn't have to, um, how, do you, how does it written there, to supervise the governments? And I think that that's basically the, you remember the quote? I'm, I'm quoting from the top of my head. Yes. I if, think it's Federalist 51. Yes, if, if all men were angels, then no government would be necessary. And if no men were angels, then no government would be sufficient. So, yeah, so I think that that's, that's the main... Uh, that's the main difference between how the conservative and the progressive see, uh, basically, I do think, I agree with you, it's a question of how do you understand um, the human nature, and I'm against engineering humanity. I think you cannot engineer a person, and, and there are a lot of implications that, coming, that, that come with it. Now, because I'm an Israeli, I can be less PC than you. Um, I, I mock the PC culture. Um, there's this um, uh, concept of uh, intersectionality and how, how how you're gonna choose someone 
it's amazing because you know I'm a big fan of Thomas Sowell, and he said that you know uh, in the 60s if you um, address people by their merits, you would be considered to be progressive. Uh, 20 years ago, you would be considered a, uh, a liberal, and now you're a, a conservative uh, because now basically people are, the the progressive side are judging people based on their gender, their color, and so on and so forth. And I like to tell this to my students who are very progressive sometimes when we argue and I tell them, okay, let's say you need to vote for a mayor and you're not gonna vote for a mayor based on their, based on the, their qualities. So who should you vote for? If you have uh, a gay black man or a female Asian person on a wheelchair, who should you vote for? Like how does that work instead of voting for people's merits? And I think that that comes from the concept of not addressing human beings is human beings, meaning in charge of their own destiny. And I'm not talking about people who, who uh, objectively have difficulties that we need to address. I'm talking about the fact that people have choices on how they live, but you need to judge people based on their um, actions and based on their words and not based on their gender, sex, and so on and so forth. And it's interesting to see that the left, basically, in my views, is now becoming a lot more racist, basically. when if they're judging a human being based on something like that, meaning that they want to engineer society to a certain way, instead of just letting human beings be human beings. It's modern day white man's burden. Uh, this, is, this is what it's become. It's this, it's this idea that, uh, it, you know, I talked about the soft energy of low expectations earlier. It's this idea of intersectionality and critical race theory that there are a select few of these white woke leftists who have all these solutions to the world's problem. And if you're a minority, then you are one of the biggest world's problems because you have historically been set, been put upon by negative forces. And therefore, the only way to bring yourself out of poverty and bring yourself into a better life is to listen to the white woke leftists who are going to tell you how to live your life. And if you don't listen to them, it's because you're not a true minority person. It is modern day white man's burden disguised as uh, woke progressivism. And uh, it's one of the last things I want to talk about. I, I want to ask you, how do you think we, we defeat this? How, how do we defeat this new woke progressive white man's burden, which is bringing our society and the human condition backwards, uh, I believe, uh, in the wrong direction, back to a more collectivist, non-human rights vision of society? How, how do we defeat this? So I'll first address the main um, problem the way I see it. And I, I don't know how it is in America, but I, I can tell you how it is in Israel. I'll explain. The problem, I think, is, is the same all over the world, but it's a little bit different in Israel because in Israel, we're a small country and we do consider ourselves as one big family. That, that is an Israeli concept. We're Middle Eastern, we're very tribal, and we, even if I really resent my political rival, I see him as a, as a brother, um, literally. Sometimes they are literally my brother. Um, so here's a problem. The left is always willing to burn down the club if it is a way to achieve their political goals. The right will never do it, meaning you, you're starting in a, in a worse position because you don't want to destroy the country. I don't think that the conservatives in America want all the progressives to leave America. You know, all these threats, if Trump is gonna win, I'm gonna move to Canada. By the way, no one said you're gonna move to Mexico, move to Canada, whatever. But, um, you know, I don't think that the conservatives are gonna say, if Joe Biden wins, I'm gonna move to Mexico or to Canada. I, I don't see conservatives saying that because they're saying, I will be upset, I won't like it, but that's my home and I wanna build it. So that's the problem. So you have one side, they're saying, if you're not going to follow my, my action, if you're not going to follow what I want to happen, I'm not playing. And the conservatives are saying, no, no, we, we have to play here together. Let's have a, a dialogue. Let's have a conversation. So in Israel, it's a little bit tricky because one side is saying, you know, burn the flag, destroy the country. It's not the left. It's the radical fringe left. And the right are saying, well, but that's not how we play. We play, you know, we're going to have a discourse and let's decide together. So that, in my opinion, that is the most uh, difficult part. When one side is saying, I'm not having to, I'm not willing to have a discourse with you. I'm not accepting you at all. You are e evil, you're horrible. And the other side is saying, well, well, we just have a different opinion. Let's talk about it. It's really problematic to continue from there. How do you, how do you um, win in such a situation? Well, 
I'm very optimistic. I think that the human nature in its core is more tilted to conservative values. And I know that it's a, it's a very loud phenomenon, the fringe radical left, but I don't think it's the majority because I think in, in, in the human heart, people like to, you know, I like my mom more than other people's moms. And I think not only is it natural, I think it's also morally just. And I think that in that sense, I have a, a lot of faith in the American people, the average Joe, right-wing, left-wing, vegan, I don't care. I think vast majority of Americans are good people, kind-hearted people. And I think that they don't want to see the world uh, you know, destroyed. They understand it. And I think that's the strength. And I'll take the example from Israel. So we have these protests in Israel against Netanyahu, which if I'll take all these people, it's not even, it's less than one seat in the Israeli parliament. It's, it's, the numbers are really insignificant when it comes to the population. And they bother me and they're very loud and they're annoying and they're causing traffic and whatever. But that's the right. And that's the price I'm willing to pay to live in a democracy. I'm, I'm willing to pay this price of having people shouting really random stuff, in my opinion. Um, good for them. I disagree with them. That's the price of living in, the, in a democracy. So I think that that's the price that conservative people will always have to pay, which means you have to, you you have to take the, um, the moral high ground, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. Uh, but with that, with that, we're going to have to wrap it up. So, um, Ron, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about you? Where can they read your stuff? Um, so, I have a Facebook page, uh, R-E-N-B-A-R-I-O, Ron Barrio. Um, so, that's where you can find most of my stuff. Uh, and hopefully, my YouTube channel will soon not only be a storage place, but it'll make it a little bit more appealing so people can see my uh, videos. All right, and uh, what's your YouTube channel called? My uh, Ron Barrio, R-E-N-B-A-R-I-O. All right, with that, with that, we're gonna wrap it up. So Ron, thanks so much for coming on uh, and thank you for uh, listening and watching and we'll be back here next time.